Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with Games in Schools and Libraries, and I am absolutely delighted um, to have today's guest, Andrew Parks, on the show. Now, Andrew is an incredible game designer with a pantheon um, of titles to his credit, both to himself as well as to his game studio that he runs. He also teaches game design um, at the university level, and one thing that was really great about how we met was he was kind enough to play one of my prototypes, and you know, as I've discussed, I'm amateur plus when it comes to game design, um, and his insights were so incredibly helpful, especially as they related to narrative and game design, and I just thought, especially for educators, you know, even who don't work with games, English language arts, there could be all kinds of really interesting applications if we look at how games can help build and shape narrative for players, and Andrew has kindly agreed to be on the show. So Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. Hi Kathleen, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about yourself and what you do? So I uh, design games full-time. I also teach uh, part-time at Rutgers uh, game design classes, but for the most part my day is spent start to finish um, designing games. I'm usually designing two or three games at a time. Uh, my studio, Quixotic Games, mostly designs games for other publishers. Uh, we've been designing games for 15 years. We are our, our 26th uh, published game design will be coming out in two days from when we're taking this interview. So probably it will be out already. And uh, I have 16 people that help me on a regular basis that uh, I couldn't do this without. They're constantly providing feedback and providing ideas, especially when we're trying to work on completely new concepts. I'm completely indebted to them. And we also have countless play testers that that help us as well. So we mostly, as I said, design games for other publishers, but we have two self-published projects, and um, one of those is the one that's just about to release. That's exciting. Um, How did you get into gaming? And, again, and how did you get into game design? Well, I've been, uh, I've been playing games since I was a kid. I actually played Dungeons & Dragons when I was 10. We had the, uh, the first box set that did not include dice. Mm. That just gives you a sense of how old I am. <laughs> yes, it came with little chits, and we would put them into a little film case, and we would take them out, and that would tell us we had one for 20-sided, 8-sided, 10-sided, and so on. So uh, I then played games all throughout when I was a teenager with my friends. A lot of those friends uh, have been designing games with me uh, for all these years. Um, we've been friends for over 30 years. And uh, I've always, you know, when I've, when I've looked forward to different careers that I was trying to pursue, in the end, I always said to myself, well... Then one day I'll get rich and then I can do some game design for fun because that's really the thing I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So 20 years ago, I was a stay-at-home dad. Uh, I had a one-year-old daughter who's now 21. And uh, my wife worked full-time at uh, Prudential and still continues to work there. And so uh, we have two daughters. So four years later, I had my second daughter. So I was staying at home with them and always trying to find new projects I could work on while I was staying home with two uh, very young girls. And so um, I tried to do web design. I tried to do um, all sorts of various things. But every once in a while, I would sort of start working on game design and see, you know, what if I could design this or while I have a little bit of free time today. So I was very much into the Lord of the Rings. This was a couple years before the new movies came Uh out. And I created uh, a Lord of the Rings uh, card game called Ring of Doom. 
and I wanted to find the company that had the Tolkien rights, and at the time that was Iron Crown Enterprises. So I sent an email, uh, very naively, I had no idea, you know, what, what the response would be, and I was so fortunate that a person who's a friend of mine still today, Donald Dennis, uh-huh. answered the email, <laughs> was super friendly, um, and said, hey, yeah, why don't you come on down to Charlottesville and show it to us? I was like, well, that's how this works. Okay. And of course, that's not how this works, especially with licensed properties. But I went down there and I met a whole bunch of people who remain my friends to this day. Pete Fenlon and Coleman Mm -hmm. Charlton and Jason Hawkins, all these people in the industry. I met them that day. I had no idea who I was meeting or how this was going to change my life. Um, That game never got published. uh, But you know, networking is everything. And that was that was a pretty good way to start my networking. Yeah, well, I mean, especially since it was Coleman, you know, that introduced me to you, too. So, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and, and you know, some, yeah, just some, some really wonderful people. Hi, Donald. Surprise. <laughs> so, um, so tell us about your philosophy about, you know, or your thoughts on narrative and game design, because this is what I really think is interesting, um, because I think it's something that people don't necessarily think about but it's such an integral part of the player experience. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that my career as a game designer has been moving inevitably in a direction that storytelling has become the center of the design process. What story are we telling? And more importantly, what story are the players telling and remembering? Because I was watching... Um, a wonderful presentation given by the designer of Hearthstone a couple of years ago. And he said something which has really stuck with me and which reminded me of things that I had thought about, but which he was able to articulate so well. And that is when a person plays a game, they don't really care about the story that was written by the designer. What they care about is the story that they and their friends are writing while they are playing. And more and more, my viewpoint on how to look at narrative in a game is about what are the stories that players tell when they're done playing your game or as they're playing your game. They're certainly not my stories. They're the stories of their own experiences. And it's something that games provide that a book or a movie can't provide. And that is this input from the players in the creation of the narrative. Um, and you can look at it in a lot of different ways, but I'll, I'll let you ask. Uh, I'm going for a long time here, but I'll ask you. Ask the oh, next no, thing. no. Um, that's okay because you, um, like you directed me to, um, an interview. And so you were talking about, I mean, there's different ways, um, the three different types of creation of narrative, narrative, you know, created by the players, you know, talked about like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons where you're explicitly creating narrative. But so for a game, um, just, you know, pick a game, like, let's say, so one of the ones you talk about is Catan. Explain what conflict, I'm sorry, explain what Catan and narrative, what that means to you in that sort of game. Like, what what does that look like for players so they know what we're talking about? Sure. So when people sit down to play Settlers of Catan, especially experienced players, they become attuned to the sort of natural rhythm and flow of the game. The game has a very distinct exposition where at the very beginning, everybody just has a couple of villages, people are doing some little trades, sometimes people just make some friendly trades, there isn't a tremendous amount of conflict yet, and people are starting to learn their place in the world. And then, uh, as the game continues, they start their settlements start getting closer to each other. 
and they start needing particular resources. Maybe they start stealing resources from other people. And so the conflict begins to increase, and that's where their narrative really begins. Now, Settlers of Catan doesn't come with a pre-made narrative. You're not following scenarios, at least not in the you know basic game mm-hmm. of Catan. So, uh, so instead, the scenario, quote-unquote, that's created is the civilization that the players are creating together and you know i'm the sheep king i'm sure you've heard people say that right or you know uh i'm i'm the person who is hoarding all of the clay you know come to me if you if you have clay needs and so they develop sort of a personality as an economy uh develops now settlers of Catan, you know isn't really um a game that creates a strict Mm -hmm. narrative but it creates enough of a narrative that the players feel like they're part of a world. And that's one of the things that I think is central to dissecting who it is that creates the most meaningful stories for game players. Why do you think this is so important? You know, isn't it just enough to sort of play a game, move around your resources? You know, there's plenty of people who, when they play games, you know, they play them very quietly, you know, (laughs) they get fussy if people are sort of talking, you know, like, what do you think have the importance of narrative is then? It's funny that you say that because I've certainly, uh, in my time, offended many a Euro <laughs> player by sitting down to play a pure Euro game and start introducing story elements. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? Is that a rule I don't know? No, nah, I was just, just kidding around, man. It's, it's okay. Uh, but, I mean, to me, that's that's the central part of fun. And for some players, absolutely, they're, they're kind of focused on uh, the mechanics exclusively. But I think our industry is changing. Um, and more and more, the idea of the pure American style player and the pure uh, Euro style player is diminishing. And you're seeing a lot more overlap between those styles of play. And storytelling, I think, for our industry has become the center of a movement. I mean, look at the games that are now dominating the Board Game Geek. Uh, ranking list. I mean, you've got Gloomhaven, number one, you've got Uh Pandemic Legacy. These are stories about narrative that is created by players, and they're scenario-based. So it gives you an idea. I I think we're heading in a certain direction that we, as a design community, haven't reached yet. Um, But I think that we're if you look at the trends of what people are playing and what people are enjoying games that involve stories and characters that they control are, are becoming the dominant game. Well, this makes me think a lot about dead of winter with its crossroad cards, where it is absolutely the injection of the thematic story into the game so that as people are playing, it's not just, you know, okay, we flip over a card and new wave of monsters appear or whatever, you know, like intentionally they have to, you know, make choices, but they're, they're part of like a longer narrative piece to help kind of build that world and that atmosphere to create a more immersive experience for players. Right. And, and I think the direction that it's things have been going in, um, is is about to change when it comes to storytelling. So the dominant way that storytelling games have been told since Dungeons and Dragons has been that a designer has sat down and written a story and someone else comes in and moderates that story for the players. Um, and that, therefore, the, uh, 
the designer's tail is the center. The designer isn't even there, presumably. Um, and that becomes the center of the, of the evening. But as you, if you've played role-playing games with experienced game masters, you know that the best game masters really start catering the story around mm-hmm. the decisions of the players. And so next week's chapter can't be written this week. I have to see what happens this week. Now I can write next week's chapter based upon what they want to do and the things that have happened. Now, if you look at board games, that's where we're going to start headed next. So the, the designer sitting down to write his or her scenario for the players is going to become, I think, less of a thing and more is going to be about the designer creating a world that allows the players to create their own stories, stories that the designer has not experienced, that the designer's playtesters have not experienced. And that's going to be challenging and difficult, but we have an extremely... uh, growth-oriented industry right now where people want to try different things. And um, one of the reasons why we've been growing so much over the past 10 years as an industry, ever since sort of the crash of like 2006 to 2008, which was a big crash, not just because of the financial markets, but because our games Uh had all started getting really the same as each other. And I think what's really happened in the interim is that people are just willing to try. People are willing to try things that aren't safe. And... I think we're going to end up in a place where a structured story um, that is told by the players uh, and is facilitated only by only structurally um, by the backstory by the designer. So the designer doesn't have to write all the scenarios. You don't get a scenario book. Instead, you get the tools to create your scenarios one at so, a time. So that's that's really interesting. You know, because it makes you think about other. You know, like just how popular legacy games are and especially when people think legacy in very strict terms that it has to be something that's a consumable game that you tear things up that you write on things you literally you know imprint your story onto this and perhaps in ways you know like you said like the where the designer is not controlling that but the player's you know, are ones, and because it develops, like, I guess, a, a sense of ownership and autonomy over that gaming experience. And it's scary for a designer to not have that kind of control, because especially we live in an age where there's so many games that the first time someone plays your game, if they don't like it, they're probably not even going to finish playing it the first time, unless give it a second or third try. So the, the temptation becomes to try to control the experience for the players as much as possible. And I think for the first playthrough, that's a legitimate concern. You want players to have a good time the first time. So having a tutorial game, a basic game, a beginner game is valid. But you have to then step back. You have to create a system where your players can make mistakes and they can they can create strange stories. And when players realize that you're not holding their hand, they're going to appreciate that it's going to take a lot more work on the part of designers because the storytelling elements need to be tested so much more thoroughly so that you can see, you know, in general, are people having a good time playing this game and what, what is causing the problems without me being there and controlling everything so tightly. I want to get to more about how understanding narrative helps like, you know, the design of a game from a mechanical perspective. But actually, right now, I want to throw in a, um, a quote from that article that you shared with me. 
And it said the temptation for a designer, of course, is to force this narrative to take place either through the use of chaos, in which excitement is generated by complete randomness, or through the opposite of chaos, contrivance, in which the game follows a predictive predictive narrative, narrative pattern each time. To avoid these two extremes, the designer must oversee hundreds of playtest sessions to ensure that the players are in control of their own destinies, not dictated by chaos or contrivance, and that the game provides enough of a narrative structure that the exciting moments of the game tend to occur when they are supposed to so and you're, you were sort of touching about the on this how can players have control of the narrative while also having exciting moments when the, when they're supposed to occur how do you as a designer create and find that balance um well i'll let you know as soon as i've found the holy grail then i'll come <laughs> and tell you about this i mean that's really to me the grail of design i I, that's exactly what I've been working on. You know, I wrote that article, uh, I guess it was about seven or eight years ago, mm-hmm. and I've been working ever since on that concept. But, I mean, the main idea is that you have to generate, as a designer, you have to generate decisions that aren't based upon a single playthrough of the game. So I'll give you an example. Um, I finished work on a game which hasn't been announced yet so i can't give you the title of the game Mm -hmm. or the license but it's a licensed superhero game Mm -hmm. and in this game instead of writing scenarios it's it's a one versus all game and instead of creating scenarios which is very common for a say descent style one versus all game i instead have included cards and random sets of cards come out for different stages of missions that are uh procedurally generated But when each of those cards comes out, the players make decisions about exactly what direction the story is going to go in. As an example, one of the mission cards says romantic attachments. So during this part of the mission, you have to pick two characters in your team that have a romantic attachment. Even though you're in the middle of this other mission, which is a superhero mission against bad guys... And you have to now watch out for these two characters. They have to end this stage near each other. And if one of them gets knocked out, then the uh, GM who's playing to win, Uh like a Descent-style game, is going to get extra points. So now you've been given the decision of these characters. And the card was facilitated by the designer. But the way that card is executed, the characters that are involved, that's the players. Now, I don't think that goes as far as I want this to go. But it has started to move me in that direction. So you've got three-part missions with completely random cards in each stage and decisions with each card determined by the players. So let's say, for example, there's a mission where there's an artifact that needs to be assembled. Um, you can start to get a hint as to what what the license might uh-huh. be. Anyway, an artifact must be assembled. Well, instead of having the mission card tell us where to put the pieces of that, I have the players place those pieces. So one player places one piece, then the heroes place a piece, and so on back and forth. So therefore, they try to set up the mission so that two different groups will play that one particular mission card completely differently from each other. They'll have different characters, even a different map. The map that comes up is is randomly generated. And so where you're placing things on that map will be different because you're playing a different map with different characters who have different powers. Um, so that, that has taken me a step closer to where I want to go. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get where I want to go. As I said, it's kind of like a Holy grail thing, but that's what I'm heading towards moving away from the completely scripted scenario written by the designer 
and more into the emergent story that is a product of three pieces. The world building of the designer, some random element derived from that world, and decisions that are made by the players, not just in reaction to the story, but in a way that helps create the story. As the example of the romantic attachments, they got to choose who the two characters were. Um, it wasn't two randomly chosen characters. Okay. Um, another time, we there's uh, there's a situation where there's a traitor. One of the four heroes is secretly a traitor. The villain chooses the traitor, but the hero doesn't even know which one of their four heroes is the traitor. After the first stage, it's revealed who the traitor is, and the hero has to do... I don't get... You know, if I'm the... If I'm the, uh, we'll call it the mastermind. If I'm the mastermind, I don't gain control of that trader. But now the heroes have to decide what's that trader going to do. If the trader doesn't do uh, certain criteria, the mastermind will get points. But if the trader does that criteria, then it's going to mess up their other mission. So instead of saying, oh, I just take control of this character, I want it to be the case now that the players are going to determine, is this trader going to follow through? There's some sort of leverage that the mastermind has against this hero. Are they going to follow through or are they going to suck up the points and, and ignore it, even though that may cause them to lose the mission? Um, this is, you could tell I'm kind of passionate about this. This is kind of like, I'm, I'm purposefully trying to do this and I'm trying to learn from each game and I'm trying to get a little bit closer to that three part uh, story that's created mm -hmm. by players. And yet not one that they're just writing completely. There's still, input from the designer and random elements Yeah, as well. well, I mean, it's funny because the game you helped me with um, is ultimately supposed to have scenarios, and I've still been working with a lot of the different, you know, mechanical aspects um, in terms of it's a dexterity game, so, you know, you really have to get the components right and get that working just right, you know. But then, too, is, you know, obviously for mine, you know, thinking about ways I could have you know, incorporate some of this, you know, narrative building for players in terms of creating story, because absolutely with what we're talking about mindset in the little fantasy world, there's all kinds of different things I could have um, players do in this. So, um, yeah, so like, so I'm just like, I'm just thinking about all these different things. I will say when you said four heroes and putting pieces together, you know, some little hints and stuff, there was a part of me that was sort of hoping that the game rhymed with, you know, Schmed school but you know that's okay um i will because <laughs> that's a game no i'm kidding i will i certainly will look forward to playing this um mystery game but so let's talk about so let's talk about this how this you incorporated this into um your new project dungeon alliance i mean especially since this isn't a licensed property you have a lot more control over you know the story and various elements how do you um, how did you like use your kind of focus on this in the development of Dungeon Dungeon Alliance? Well, one of the one of the first things that I had thought of for Dungeon Alliance was this concept that uh, a story begins with characters, and rather than tell players which characters they're playing, we we include seventeen characters in the game. Uh -huh. And so, you know, that's, that's part of the world building. In other words, I don't have the players build a character from nothing. I do provide them with these 17 very unique individuals. Uh -huh. Each of them plays extremely differently. So the mashup of any four of those characters is going to be completely different 
at, from the start of the game to the finish of the game than another set of four characters. Uh, but what I wanted to have develop in Dungeon Alliance is this idea that you, in your mind while you're playing, develop the relationship of these four characters. Because based upon how you drafted the characters and the situations that they find themselves in, you have to find a way to make them work together. You might have a paladin and an assassin. and a, I mean, you, it is a draft, so you're not getting these characters randomly. But you have to come up with tactics. And a story develops. And we, while we were playing, were very, um, you know, unable to control ourselves from talking about what was happening and why won't you why why didn't you send that person over there get over there you know we're talking to our own little because each of us in dungeon alliance has our own team of four characters so you could play it competitively you could play cooperatively but if you play cooperatively each player still has their own team of four characters that are just sort of working with each other or you can play the game solo with just your own four characters um also instead of writing uh static scenarios Similar to the mission cards I was talking about in the superhero game that I've worked Uh on, we have quest cards in Dungeon Alliance, and three different quest cards come out, um, and therefore you're deciding as a player, am I going to work on those quests? Am I going to instead just go for treasures? Am I going to compete with that other player's team for the quest? Maybe we're playing co-op and we're working together to defeat a final enemy that's going to come out. So that idea that the scenario has been generated from different parts provided by the designer, the designer is still involved in creating that world, but there's a random element. And then finally, there's the player's input in which parts of the story they're going to focus on. Is there sort of a design cliff that you could fall off of, you know, if you, you know, push, you know, that like, what's the, you know, the breaking point in a game from a design standpoint where narrative begins to overwhelm the game itself, the central conflict, the mechanics, is there a point where that can happen or where you see that happening? Yeah. I mean, in the end, it's a game first and a story. The story is told through the game Mm -hmm. mechanics So if you get to the point where the game mechanics are meaningless, then you've moved away from it being a game. And so therefore, it's important that there's a certain degree of mechanical balance in the game that makes the players uh, feel that the story is not something they're in absolute control over. Because at any point that either the players lose absolute control or achieve absolute control over the story it's become something new. It hasn't, it's no longer a game. And I think that's, that's the essential Uh piece that I worry about is at what point do I fail as a designer because I'm not providing the world, the structure that players need. So, um, I think that's why people, that's what people are looking for. And that's why I'm I'm referring to it as a a sort of a grail Uh design goal, because in relinquishing control, I mean, look at, let's look at, if you don't mind, let's look at just video Uh games in general. The emergent story uh, that is is a story that's created by the game without the designer ever having seen that story is terrifying to a designer. If you're working on a game that costs, now we're not talking about board games, right? So we're talking about 100, 200, 300 million Mm -hmm. dollar budgets. And if it doesn't tell the right story and the narrative moments don't happen exactly where they're supposed to happen, 
people could say this is a stupid game and then put that review up and now you're out three hundred right. million dollars. So you, there's a real reluctance to give players too much choice. Um, Peter Molyneux, I think, is infamous for having stated at one point that being a good designer isn't about giving players choice. It's about giving players the illusion of choice. And I couldn't disagree huh. more. <laughs> that The very thought that your, your goal as a designer is to make people think that they have control that they don't actually have is so, as a as a gamer, it is so the antithesis of my philosophy. Of I want the players to have real control, but of course, as I said, not absolute control, so that they still feel like there's a challenge. So I run, um, I have an all-women role-playing game group because I want more women um, to play role-playing games. I think they're, you know, obviously so fun in terms of, you know, A, hanging out, you know, sitting around, but also, you know, d- women are great at telling stories. M- men are. Yeah, I mean, my, I have my two daughters who, have, of course, grown up playing uh, lots of games, including role-playing games with me, so I'm contributing to the Yeah, cause. absolutely. And, um, <laughs> and so, I don't know, are you familiar with the Lady Blackbird system? I'm not. Okay, so Lady Blackbird is great. It is a 17-page long RPG. Um, like, 11 of those pages are um, basically um, character sheets. But it's a really, like, tight yet loose world. It's really fully formed when you read about it, but it's open-ended in terms of the directions you can go. So there's, you know, questions that sort of guide, but it's really not scripted towards a particular ending. You know, it's really about that. And the game does some really clever things with... Um, you know, like you gain XP when you're basically, when you hit your motivation. And so it really ties, you know, like the dice rolling into, you know, motivation. So the characters aren't just mucking about, especially since it's so open-ended, um, but they, they're working towards a purpose. But the other thing too, in that game is it's meant to give players a lot of narrative control. And I think it depends on the, uh, you know, the comfort of the game master or the preference of that, but, you know, players can dictate success and failure. And I learned about Lady Blackbird playing this in um, RPG Geek. It was a play by forum. And I just had so much fun, especially like narrating failure, you know, because, you know, we think about it's not always, especially for storytelling in games, it's not about solving all the problems. It's about, you know, having the unexpected or throwing another wrench in there and just, you know, sort of having that confidence that you can see that story to the end. And so the one thing, and so we played Lady Blackbird. And that went well, but once I shifted and made a Harry Potter themed version, that's when, you know, all the women came out of the woodwork. And so I've got, you know, probably about, you know, 10, 12 women on a rotating basis. You know, they come in and play when they can, you know. So I've got a really big group of women who really like this Harry Potter world, obviously, and, and playing. But the thing I think is really interesting is they don't necessarily take narrative control when they can. Um, the couple players who came out of, you know, backgrounds heavy in, you know, D&D and Pathfinder, you know, they would do something like maybe fail a role and then look at me and be like, okay, then what happens? I'm like, well, what do you think happens? And, you know, so I would definitely have to take over more of that, you know, narrative control side. But then other times you know, certain players or even, you know, those particular players have been better about introducing narrative and conflict into that story. And, and it, I think it is in some ways, you know, it was harder with Lady Blackbird because it was such an unfamiliar world. But with Harry Potter, I mean, 
everybody just wants to get in there and they know this world and they want to, you know, include and, you know, all of a sudden Filch shows up, like who knew he's still around, you know, because we're kind of working in the cursed child era, you know, but I think it's really interesting when it comes to, you know, the point where, where players are comfortable inserting their own kind of conflict that not sure where it could go versus wanting me to kind of guide the story. I mean, I think I have a lot of fun with it. So I think sometimes they might feel like they're taking away some of my fun by, you know, them taking that part of the story away from it too. So usually I would say about, you know, five, six of the time, I'm the one kind of like guiding, you know, where, you know, the different decisions are going. But I think it's really interesting when players have that, you know, sort of control you know, that's, I think, for for Harry Potter, where the cliff is for us, is I can't give them as much control as they could have. You know, they're not comfortable with that right. full amount of control. And I think because it does, you know, make maybe they, it wouldn't, maybe, I don't know if it's because it wouldn't feel like as much of a game. I'm not sure what it is. Right. So, I mean, I think um, what, you've, what you've hit upon there, especially when you talked about failure, is that failure it makes a story good. Um, but in games, you don't want to fail. In fact, you, you know, I've played many a video game, a story-oriented video game, and my character has lost a battle, and I can't proceed with the game until I refight that battle. And I'm thinking to myself, why? I lost. Let the story continue, please. I don't have to win every fight. Um, but that's harder for the designer. The designer has one bottleneck for, that I have to get through in order to continue with this game. Even with all the the sophistication that we have in stories in games, a lot of them still require you to redo the fight or to get past this one thing, even if you have to try it a different way. And, you know, if you look at, I think one of the, the flaws of role-playing games in general, and I'm just as guilty of it, is when do we reward players when we when they when they accomplish something, they get experience points. When they fail, they might even lose experience points. But that's not how life works, uh-huh. right? In life, you get far more experience points from failing at something than from succeeding at it. You might have just gotten lucky with your success. So I've also been thinking that more with my designs is that when a player fails to achieve something, sure, they don't gain the victory points, they don't gain the magic object or whatever, but they still gain experience, experience that will help them become better at that at that task. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that, that once we move away from that sense that, you know, the story has to get to a particular place, uh-huh. um, then we're going to, that's the kind of freedom that players need to know. They need to know that the story can branch off in a new direction and it's okay that they're not trying to get to point B. They're trying to just keep moving forward and they're going to get to point A through Z and wherever they get, it's going to be because of their own actions. Uh Well, I definitely recommend that you check out Lady Blackbird in terms of how they do it. Um, And I'm sure there's lots of other great games out there too. Um, And and if other people are wanting to um, incorporate role play games and narrative um, into a class, check out Lady Blackbird because it's something that uh, my students have done and played and have adapted themselves. Actually, they did a, a whole Harry Potter um, world themselves based on it. Um, so I think that's worth checking out because it does kind of get really close, I think, to that sort of balance between um, 
you know, between having, you know, player control over narrative, but still having it be a game. But that said, you know, in role-playing games, you know, the emphasis is story, you know, but when we're talking about, you know, tabletop games, you know, mechanics and, you know, how the game plays in the world and the structure the designer builds, um, you know, makes it a little bit, it's not as, you know, reflexive, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word. And Right. And, 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 and it may not even be the best business, right? Because, I mean, how many uh, of our favorite companies put out lavishly beautiful games that come with enough scenarios to last you for the first couple of weeks, and then it's time to go get the expansion because you're done with the game up until that mm-hmm. point. And with what I'm proposing um, that we should do more of, it actually goes against that business model because theoretically, given if the if the game comes with enough story cards that can be combined in unique ways, then you don't need to get that expansion for a long time. I guess the expansion might give you new characters. Mm-hmm. It might give... But you can still play the game on its own for as long as you want. And that's one of that's always one of my goals because I may not be the best business person in the world, but I'm a gamer, and I know what I want in a game. I want to buy a game, and I can play it a thousand times. And then if you give me an expansion, that's just a bonus. But it shouldn't be required. And a scenario-driven game typically... Over, I mean, one of the reasons why people love Gloomhaven is there's 96 scenarios in there, right? You're not going to run out anytime mm-hmm. soon. Um, so, but you do get games that come with 12 scenarios, and so you, if you really love that game, you are you are going to run out of those, and you're going to have to buy something new. And I just that idea that the game has planned obsolescence mm-hmm. to it is really frustrating. I think it's one of the reasons why Gloomhaven has has reoriented the industry because of the fact that when you buy this 20 pound <laughs> game and open it up, you have experiences here that are going to last you for countless mm-hmm. hours. And it's just so exciting to people that they're getting it all in one box and they can start all over again with new characters and it'll be a totally different story. So, um, so I think that's, that's where we're headed. Uh, as an industry, and I'm very excited about it because that's what I've always wanted. So do you see yourself working on something that's more, you know, legacy-based then? Because this is a structure that I think is probably leading the charge in terms of um, narrative and games. Yeah, um, I've certainly talked to publishers who have talked to me about making a legacy game of, of a certain style. And I think, although I think it's really fun to rip up cards and use marker on your board and so on. I think it's just as easy to make a, uh, I'm not, excuse me, I shouldn't say just as easy. I think it's attainable <laughs> to make one of those games where you've made changes over the course of things, and then you can go back and start all over again. Um, I think that's probably, you know, you see some games already doing that. Um, the idea that you don't have planned, I think the planned obsolescence is the thing that upsets critics of legacy games that uh-huh. you know people say well when you're done with the with the several 12 15 chapters then you can still play the the final version of the game over and over again but at the heart of a legacy game is the joy of watching this world permanently transformed by what you're doing uh-huh. so i feel like if i worked on a legacy game part of what i would want to do is to make sure that you could completely reset the experience all over again. Um, and that the end of the story, like in a legacy game, is so open-ended that um, you really, you know, you should start all over again. I, I want people to f- discover things and put up session reports. And as a designer, I want to read them and go, oh my God, I had no idea that could even happen. <laughs> you know, that to me will be success. As long as they're having fun, of course. And that that's the challenge. Right. Absolutely. Um... So I 
I shared with you um, a, the a presentation that I give my students on theme and conflict. Um, as this is where they're at right now in terms of kind of deciding what they want the theme of their game to be, the mechanics, at least of the initial prototype. You know, when I talk about theme as like an immersive world to help players, you know, give them context for the game to hook them in. I talk about conflict. We talk about um, plot, the elements of plot, how they relate to games. Um, so, you know, for example, the exposition is, you know, the equivalent of like reading the rules and the objective, you know, the um, you know, the climax is when the end is triggered, you know, that sort of thing. And so I, I guess, you know, I feel like when I'm teaching it now, if you're listening to this, you can always go to KathleenMercury.com. Everything's on there for free. Um, under teaching resources, you can find this for theme and conflict. Um, but I feel like there's a part that's kind of missing in terms of what I'm wanting to convey to my students. You know, I talk about the large scale conflict, which is like the challenge that the, the game itself presents, like in the game survive, they're trying to get off the island and save as many of their people as possible. And the small scale internal conflict is the conflict where, you know, it's the choices players make, you know, which tile to play, what actions to take, what tile to remove, you know, which monster to move, you know, trying to get them to see how conflict is compelling and drives the game. But I think there's like a, I don't think I have it fully stitched together in terms of explaining how games have, you know, a story, a narrative, a plot, and really tying that into conflict and what that means for the player. Well, I think one of the things that I thought about when I was looking at your presentation was um, for some players, the type of conflict, whether it's direct or indirect conflict, can be very, very important. For some players, unless you're thrashing each other soundly, it's it's multiplayer solitaire, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, if I'm not directly affecting you. But for other players, you know, being able to draft a card that you wanted is all the conflict that they need. So that's more indirect. And I think it's a difference between I'm taking something that you want as opposed to I'm taking something that you have. I think emotion, mathematically, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Emotionally, it's very, very different. And for some people, they love the emotion of, of destroying their foes. And really, in some ways, this is, is, is one way that you can simplify the difference between the extreme American style game and the extreme Euro style game. And that is one is about attacking, taking away from the other player. And one is taking an opportunity away from another player. And when you take something I want, it's a bummer, but it's not something that I've already worked to achieve. You've just removed one of my potential options. So I think for some players, um, and there's no right answer to this, Mm -hmm. recognizing the nature of uh, direct or indirect conflict um, is something I think really important because there are certain players that only like one kind or a little mix of them and not the other. That's a really good point. Yeah, because it's funny because the mechanics that my students like um, best, I mean, take that um, has just become one of their favorites (laughs) in, in terms of, you know, because it's a way to really clearly have player interaction. Um, there's about 25, 30 games that, and they play most of them in the beginning of the semester as they're learning about games and playing games. Um, and walk the plank, the little game from, uh, Mayfair, Mayday Games, pardon me. Um, that's one that's really popular. It's short, you know, it's fast, it's easy to learn. Um, but they really love, you know, like the programmed action. So how things can go haywire, they think that's really fun. But also, 
you know, just like that you are intentionally as a game designer, letting people mess with each other. <laughs> Maybe it's a, just because I teach seventh graders, especially, but they really, most of them really, really enjoy that game. It's one of the most common games that come out there because it's so specific in terms of I'm going to take something away from you. And right. So one of the dangers that I talked about before was the fact that, uh, things can become too contrived as a designer, uh -huh. right? That I can be in such absolute control. But then, as you also talked about, a way to come off the cliff is too much freedom. And that is chaos provides that sense of story. I think in some ways, if there's too much chaos, it presents it artificially. Like if you play a very chaotic take that game, it can be really fun the first time you play it and maybe the third time that you play it. But after a while, all this card does is take that card away from that person. And if you've done it enough times it's suddenly not as fun anymore for some players at least. Mm -hmm. And um, so the danger is that once again, this sense that you'll give players an illusion that they're controlling the action. But the reality is anything can happen at any second with certain take that games. And therefore it becomes unsatisfying to a player who actually likes to have long-term strategy. Well, I think you just de described why I no longer have a copy of Apples to Apples in my classroom. I mean, some of the pop culture mm -hmm. references the kids don't know and get, obviously, but so often when I had that and they would play it, they would just throw in random stuff, you know, just tr trying yeah. to be funny, you know, and it just, to me, it just like, ugh, wearisome, you know what I mean? Like, you're just throwing things in, you know what I mean? And, like, and so then, for me, that's where I tend to think of it more like, you know, activity, not necessarily game, that's okay. Um, and there's definitely a time and a place for that, but especially when it would just become absolutely chaotic, absolutely chaotic yeah. with no sense of like coherent game. And some kids, you're right, absolutely would get very, very frustrated because they actually wanted to try to play the game and other kids to them, that was the game. The game was just, you know, trying to make people laugh and just being because so little structure has been provided. And with Apples to Apples, the point is not to have structure, mm -hmm. right? The people play however they want. But the problem is when you're making a game for the hobby, you have to be careful that you, have, you don't have so little structure that different players are going to hate your game when they play it because the game seems to be one thing. But because of the actions of other players, it's something else mm -hmm. entirely. And that's where your job as a designer is to make sure that things can't go off the deep end so easily, unless everyone's trying to destroy the game. If people are trying to play the game well, that they have some sort of an advantage and are able to continue playing the game well. But um, and, and that, again, you know, isn't something you can sit down, figure it out in a notebook, design it sit down and say, it's ready. It's ready for publication. Let's start playing. I mean, as you know, th it's a messy, messy mm -hmm. process. And especially when you're trying to do new things, when you're trying to do um, what you hope are innovative things, then it's going to require that much more testing. Um, and not only that, but most of the time when a new player plays a game that's very, very different from what they've experienced, I shouldn't say most of the time, but some of the time, they won't like the game because they wanted it to be like something that they could experience. They wanted to be able to learn the game faster. They didn't want to have to learn the mm -hmm. strategy, that, that deep learning curve. I know that with Dungeon Alliance, one of the things that we had to do very early on was that even with very experienced gamers, the decision process, the first time you play the game, even though the rules themselves are fairly straightforward the first time you go through, um, 
the decision process was so difficult strategically because you're controlling four characters with one deck of cards that even to my most experienced testers, there were some of them, some of them got it right away. They got the strategy. Some of them, the strategy was unattainable the first game. So we created cards, basic game cards, and I've put articles up on Board Game Geek to let people know, really, no matter how tempted you are, please play the basic game the first time because this will help you start to understand the strategy because that's one of the dangers of innovation sometimes is that players, they won't be able to apply classic strategies to Uh your new mechanics and that will become a source of frustration for them because the game seemed to want them to play one way but that way was not effective. And as a designer, you also have to anticipate that and try to make that experience as smooth and as fun as possible for those players sure, as well. The you're first you're time genre busting basically. And it's something that, you know, if you go in expecting one type of game, you know, just like if you were reading a novel and all of a sudden it's a light romantic comedy and then there's a horrible murder, you know, it might kind of set you back a little bit in terms of this is not necessarily what you expected. And just being different doesn't mean it works, right? I mean, you have games that try to switch genres and people are like, this is just a complete mess. In order to mm-hmm. find that way, is it takes the most difficulty. I think one of the great examples um, that was so successful in the movies last mm-hmm. year was that movie Get Out, which was this strange mix of comedy and horror. It wasn't, it wasn't a spoof against horror movies. It wasn't all laughs. It was really scary at times. And yet, when it was funny, it was also mm-hmm. really funny. So... That was a very, very narrow tightrope walk to make that work, that strange genre buster. Um, so many other movies have tried to do that and have failed completely. So either it's just, it's just the whole thing's a joke mm-hmm. or it's not funny at all. Um, and I think as a designer, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to find those hybrids and find a way to make it work in a way that hasn't worked yet and, and trying to appeal to players mm-hmm. of at least a certain type. Um, and that's, uh, that's as artists, that's, you know, that's the big challenge. Um, so you teach at, um, you teach game design at Rutgers. Um, and especially since, you know, so many, you know, teachers, like, I mean, I teach middle school, obviously, um, you know, you're, you're introducing kids to the idea of the basics of, you know, plot and conflict. What are some ways that you think teachers could apply some of this using games, somehow, simulations, whatever, to their own classes. Like, if an English teacher wanted to, you know, was like, yes, I want to have, you know, play kids creating narrative using some sort of games. Is there Are there any games you recommend? Are there any types of experiences that you should suggest that they try out? Well, I think um, what, what, let me answer your first question first, mm-hmm. which was what, what could they learn in teaching narrative from games? And I think one of the first things is that um, you want to have the ending of your story be unpredictable, yet you still want it to be satisfying, right? We've seen, we've read plenty of books where we get to the end and it was, oh, that was a twist, but there was no foreshadowing, so I really don't care. Um, So to understand, you know, when you play a game, that the ending will be in some kind of doubt and yet you want players to focus on what brought them to that point that still made it into a satisfying narrative, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. I think that cooperative games are a really great way to introduce players to this concept. First of all, as soon as people are all working together, 
Uh, I'm talking about like non-trader games, which have become, as you know, so popular, cooperative games without traders. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still plenty of popular games with traders, mm -hmm. but especially in the past five or six years, there's really been this whole new market that's opened up of people that only play cooperative games. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what's nice about a cooperative game if it's done well, is that you have this very clear sense of the story being told, usually through cards. Pandemic, of course, being a great example. Um, and the players are watching these cards come out and creating these moments of tension and seeing how the characters that they control react to those. So I, another great game, which is a cooperative game, which would be great for especially younger students, I am obsessed with that game, Ghost Fight and Treasure Hunters. I don't know if you've ever played this game. It is a kid's game. It is a beautiful kids game that Dale Yu designed. It won the uh, Kinderspiel des Jahres, uh, the German version. And what's wonderful about that game is through an extremely simple set of rules. It, it used dice to move, which I, you know, I don't necessarily approve of that. <laughs> but other than that, it's, it's such a brilliant game because it always seems to find its narrative arc, even though every game feels completely different. And... Um, to have players play that so that they're not... I think one of the things that will distract players if they're trying to understand the narrative is if they're playing a game with a lot of take-that sort of elements or a lot of I'm-attacking-you sort of elements. If they're playing a game where they're cooperating together, then you immediately lose that whole real sense of rivalry. We're trying to defeat this game. We all have to work together. Mm -hmm. And then watch the story unfold. When we get to the end, do we win? Or do we lose? Why did we win? Why did we lose? What were the decisions that we made? And was it a good story regardless of whether we won or lost? Was it still satisfying? Was it still fun for the players? I think that would be a great way to go for teachers. Mm -hmm. um, for your own students, um, when you teach game design, um, do you have any like interesting sort of experiences or stories from students in terms of how they respond to this, you know, in terms of when they think of games and game design, you know, obviously people, people always think, you know, video game design first, you know, so when you've got kids right. in, you know, tabletop game design, you know, especially with the varying levels of experience, how do students respond to this at the college level? Well, what's interesting is so many students, even if they're taking a course called game design or advanced game design, still, have not played a tremendous amount of board games if they're American. Like there are, there's the American hobby market, but there is still this giant untapped market. I have so many students come in, and the only board game they've played is Monopoly, maybe Risk. It's it's actually shocking to me because I know that the industry and many more now these days have played Settlers at least. Uh -huh. That's good, and some have played Ticket to Ride, and some have played some board games on their iPads or their tablets. So that's great. But there are still so many players who don't even have the concept of what a different type of game is. One of the first games um, that we play in my class, as simple as the game is, is Guillotine. It's a very simple, easy-to-learn game with three rules. But what's wonderful about it is, as soon as they start playing that game, their entire concept of what a game is, moving along a track, rolling a die, is blown away. They have, the, mm -hmm. the, you know, And then we move to San Juan. And so now that's a much more complex game. Or we'll play Citadels. And mm -hmm. that has some take that elements a little bit, you know, with the, uh, certainly with right. the Assassin. But they're starting to n see that you can make decisions and choices without using dice. Um, mm -hmm. And that will really surprise people um, when they're playing it. And after they start seeing those games, you then say to them, let's do an, an early version of a game. And some players will get it. 
Some players will still try to make their own version of Monopoly or Risk. Mm-hmm. Um, some will try to make an MMO board game their very first time out and say, well, this, this game is going to have 30,000 adventures. It's like, okay, s- slow down there. Let's, let's <laughs> do something a little simpler. Um, but, you know, I think the biggest challenge for an American uh, teacher of game design is the fact that many of the students coming in are game illiterate. And the, uh-huh. the, you must get those students. You, you could do all the theory in the world. It just won't make an ounce of sense to someone who has not played a variety of styles of tabletop games. And, I have. Um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's, you know, that's always one of my first concerns. We just we launch into game after game after game for those first several weeks. See, that's exactly the approach I take, too. And I've talked a lot about gaming literacy, you know, especially as, you know, for kids to learn a variety of styles of games and especially a variety of mechanics. Because, you know, I remember when I first started gaming, you know, about, you know, 10, 12 years ago, about I would just go home with a headache every single night because, you know, if I'm just learning all these games and new ways to play and what I can do and what is this and, you know, things where it's like, you know, you know, stuff like horror experiences when I was, you know, someone tried to teach me um, Race for the Galaxy at like my third meetup and I just couldn't comprehend it. I couldn't put all the pieces together. It was just so confusing to me. Again, because like I didn't have that type of gaming literacy, you know, and how important it is for my students to to build in that literacy of understanding all these different mechanics and how they use them. And um, to wit, we were playing mechanics uh, charades when we were just reviewing them, making sure they understood mechanics. And um, a student was acting out roll and move. And all the other kids yelled out all these names of all these other mechanics. And finally, they were like, we give up. And he looked at them and he said, roll and move. And I just thought, if there's a moment that shows I'm doing the right thing for these children, (laughs) is that roll and move has suddenly become the last mechanic that they think of in terms of games. But And that's, I mean, I've, you know, certainly talked about, you know, I mean, I teach game design to, to kids. And I mean, I've harped many a time when we have to get better games in front of kids because there's so many good ones that, you know, you can do. I mean, I had a parent who I was at a bar mitzvah for a student and we were talking on the dance floor and she was talking about the, how her couple games that her daughter really loved that we played in class and she hunted them down and bought them. And she said, I will never not buy my child a board game. If she wants to play board games, I will buy her any game she wants because parents see the value of them, you know, but it's just getting them, you know, off the shelves. And it's good that, you know, we're seeing more of them, you know, at Target and um, Barnes and Noble, although they're going to be scaling back on their game soon. Um, So getting them out there so people can see, I mean, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, I had a student come in who had played Puerto Rico and I was so surprised. And he was the only one who had played anything. And now, you know, with games club and teaching siblings, and I have so many kids who go to game conventions now, like it's absolutely possible to build this, you know, for teachers just to start doing, you know, game clubs after school, you know, and just, you can, you can do this, you can build this, but it's just, one of the great difficulties is it's so easy for them to access video games and digital games on tablets and on device, you know, devices, consoles, whatever. But a board game is something that, you know, but at least there's a lot of popular board games uh, that have been converted and ported very well over there. So that will at least introduce yeah. those newer ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, 
I think what we're also seeing, which I think is in the short term going to have a very negative effect, and I'm being optimistic and hoping in the long term um, it could have a positive effect, is that in spite of the fact that the game industry is exploding in size, especially the last five or six years, retail game stores are closing mm-hmm. because they they just can't compete with online. And that's tragic. One of my favorite game stores of all time that I've been going to since I was a little kid just mm-hmm. closed in the Woodbridge Mall is the game room. And I was I was just depressed for like a week. Um, but I think, I think the key, and I've talked to a few other um, game store owners about this, is what we need to start doing, and this will increase game literacy, is we need to see more board game cafes in mm-hmm. America. We need to see places where buying the game is secondary, but buying food is how they make their money. And then teaching games, the waiters teach games and so on, because that gives you that literacy. It's you know, restaurants with all the problems that that the world economy is 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 struggling with in retail. Food is still doing good. <laughs> restaurants are still people doing still well. So combining that with gaming, people still need to eat, and lots of us are too lazy <laughs> to cook. Um, so you know, so having game cafes like they have on every street corner in European cities, I think that may be the next step for how um, we are able to uh, have a, a more successful game market in the U.S. and teach people how to play games at the same time. Um, and then, yeah, sell games too. That's great. But if you're relying on selling games to people and they're only buying games from you because they're being nice, even though they can get the game for free shipping and 60% of the cost online, that's not a sustainable right. business model. And without those game stores, mm-hmm. we're not teaching people to play games anymore. So we're going to be in a lot of trouble as an industry unless we evolve in some way. And I'm hoping that the board game cafes will be something that we see. There are some in the U.S., certainly. Um, my daughter went to one when she was staying up in Massachusetts recently. So that was very exciting. But I'm hoping we're going to see a lot more. Yeah. Well, and I always say, too, if I had a dollar for every game I've sold as a result of my class, I would have $400. But honestly, <laughs> I think that, like, but I think honestly that the, the total's more than that, you know, that, you know, if kids want to play games, parents are more than happy, you know, to, you know, if they have the means, obviously. But, you know, the parents are happy to support kids playing games because they're home, they're safe, they're secure. Um, but they're having fun with their friends in an intellectual way. I mean, we can, you know, speak to the, we're preaching probably to the choir on this, obviously. So, yeah. um, and if people are listening to this, generally speaking, they probably agree. So I think we can, we'll just assume that everybody believes and is supportive. Right. And I don't, and I don't want to sound like I'm saying there should be no game stores or that, that they're all going to go away. And that's, that's the last thing I would ever want. Oh, yeah. And certainly would suggest it's more the case of how can we take, how can we save that, that in-person experience for tabletop games Uh um, because it's so vital, the social component, which you can't get from a tabletop video game, um, for example. Uh, You can't get that people sitting around the table laughing and spilling drinks and all those things they shouldn't be doing. (laughs) Um, You need need that in-person experience, so I'm hoping that we're going to see an evolution so that we keep the stores that we have and grow more stores. Yes. Amen to that. Well, Andrew, thank you so, so much for being on the show. This has been really, really interesting. I've got all kinds of little notes that I've scribbled down for myself in terms of um, things to look into, um, just different ideas. Plus, you know, right behind my computer is the... uh, 
the, the structures uh, for my game. So, like, it's literally going, Kathleen, Kathleen. <laughs> but you've really helped, I mean, at, at BGG, but also here, you know, really thinking about games um, from this narrative perspective, because I think sometimes I just, I tend to think of games as, you know, cool, innovative mechanics and how you can do that. But if without, you know, the soul of the game, you know, then the, you know, the, the moving parts just are, you know, could just be a skeleton of something. And I think, um, really tapping into, um, what games can be in terms of experiences for the player and what they take and remember from that experience. So thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me, Kathleen. It's been very, very instructive and fun. Excellent, excellent. I'm so glad this was good for you too. Well, this is Kathleen Mercury with Games and Schools and Libraries. Andrew, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you online? Well, you, they can certainly find me uh, at our main website, which is www.quixoticgames.com, and I'm sure you'll have that in the show notes so people mm-hmm. don't have to learn how to spell it themselves. We also have a Facebook page for Quixotic Games, and we're on Twitter. Um, so, And I am very, very present on Board Game Geek. I'm all over the place. I'm answering questions during all hours of the night. Um, and What's your username uh, on Board Game Geek? It's just Andrew Parks. Okay, easy enough. Um, yeah, so just look for me there. Certainly I'm, I'm there discussing other games that I play and my own games. People ask questions. Um, if, if other players haven't been able to answer them, I always try to come in and answer them myself. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, talking to players is probably one of the most fun parts of my job. That's awesome. And I, and I will attest that you were incredibly kind and patient with, uh, my game in terms of, you know, playing it and offering your own feedback. I can't wait to play that game again. (laughs) Yeah. That game was fun. I'm excited too. Yeah. And yeah, it's, uh, I I had to switch around some of the the components, um, because we ran into some tracking problems with some of it. Um, but I think it actually makes, it makes it better sense because it makes the game feel more like what it's supposed to be as opposed to, you know, kind of representing more abstractly so um you know just who knew that meeples could be the answer who knew um <laughs> but anyway but it's a fun process but it's it, it is a it is a stressful mess but it's a fun process so thank oh yeah, yeah so thank you all right well, so this is kathleen mercury uh, games and schools and libraries you can find me online um i'm on twitter at, at mercury with seven m so it's at mercury um you can also find me on Board Game Geek as Funk Donut. You can also find me on my website, KathleenMercury.com, where I put all of my game design uh, resources for free. When I got started teaching game design, I couldn't find anything. And what's the fun about having things just sit around and file? So I might as well just throw it on Google Drive and the world can enjoy. So thanks so much and look forward to speaking to you next time. Oh boy, oh boy, it's almost time for the con. I can't wait to do these escape rooms, play the role-playing games, the board games, show off all these cool new coding games. Shush! Yeah, that's the one. No, shush! We're in a library, sir. We most certainly are. It's ShushCon, a games and geekery convention held in Polly's Island, South Carolina at the Walker Monarch Branch Library, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th. It's the best value for gaming in the Carolinas. We'll have the new board game hotness, you know, the good stuff classic and indie rpgs so we'll have dread call of cthulhu trail of cthulhu paranoia savage worlds and dread organized play events like DD, pathfinder society and Shadowrun, as well as war machine hordes iron arena and steamroller events video games like the jackbox party pack artemis overwatch land party and a hearthstone fireside gathering we're a tavern Woohoo! and we're gonna have escape room games and custom made escape rooms 
We'll also be hosting a magic draft. And in the finest tradition of Shashkan, we will have a tea party and tea tasting. So we'll have a variety of tasty teas for you to taste and tickle your tonsils. Taste tea? Oh. We will also record segments for On Board Games, On RPGs, and the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. So you could be on air if you show up here. We're also going to host our library and trade day again. But this time, we're going to be talking about coding and coding activities for libraries. So if you're a librarian, show up. We're going to focus on coding to play and playing with code. That's March 23rd, starting at 10 a.m. and going until 1 p.m. on that Friday, where we're just going to break out the code and show you how you can bring code into your library in the geekiest way possible. And then, of course, you can stay and play games, games, games. And that's part of the Libraries Ready to Code grant that we just received. Look, that's all good and well, but this is a library. I need you to take it down a couple notches. Oh, yes. Uh, so, Shushcon, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th, Polly's Island, South Carolina. Best value in gaming for all the Carolinas, because it's free. Join us and have fun. Shush! No, Shushcon! Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com, where we have other great shows such as On Board Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, I Sense a Theme, and The Room Escape Divas. Games in Schools and Libraries podcast is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. You can come and play games with me at the Waccamonic Ranch Library in Georgetown County, South Carolina, in Polly's Island. And we'd love to see you. Also, come for Shushcon, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th, where we will be running and playing games.